I'm going on vacation starting tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to it. But I am going to miss all of you in the process. We are going to be gone a couple of weeks. And now we're taking a driving family vacation, my favorite kind, where we drive around and talk and laugh and observe God's beautiful creation. Actually, we're going up to Idaho. I'm going to be preaching next Sunday up in Columbia Bible Church. And uh, then we're leaving from there and moving on to see some else. Other parts of the West Coast, we're so parochial. We have lived 16 years here in Southern California and never been north of Fresno. So um, we're going to do a little better than that this time and uh, see what we've been told is beautiful country up along the California coast. So that's kind of our plans. Uh, We'll be back in time for the annual meeting. And uh, then the fall will be upon us, as uh, Vincent mentioned. It's just around the corner. The endless summer is almost over, and it's going to be time to go back to work. And uh, we have some really ambitious goals and plans for this coming year. And one of the key components of that is a desire to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a very significant way. And so my brother Jim Wine and many, many others have been working diligently behind the scenes, putting together what we're calling the Upland Campaign. That campaign will kick off the end of September. It's a multi-day campaign. It's the equivalent of a short-term missions trip, but the mission field is only four miles, or less than four miles, about two miles south of this property, rather than having to get on an airplane and fly a couple of thousand miles away. The world has come to us, and uh, we want to take advantage of that tremendous ministry opportunity. There are many places to be involved in the Upland Campaign, and we need to be involved as a congregation. If we leave it to just a few, then there will be an impact, because God always honors His Word. But the size of the impact, the size of the footprint, if you will, that will be left, will be far less significant than if we as a body get involved in this. I've got a special message. Uh, I haven't prepared it yet, but I have a title and a text, and that's always a good start, that I will be preaching on September 9th as we uh, kind of focus as a fellowship on an attempt to really make a significant impact in this community for Jesus Christ. We need prayer support. There are various physical and tangible helps that are necessary. There are evangelists and translators and and on and on and on. Uh, Brother Jim, I'm sure, has a massive list where he can find a place for everybody to be involved at some level or another. And some are making quite significant sacrifices, taking vacation time and raising funds to uh, support their evangelism endeavors. So it's going to be a significant event, and I want to see the church. I believe God would like to see this church involved in that. You know, when you're presenting the gospel uh, to someone, we need to recognize the fact that uh, various objections may crop up in the gospel presentation. That is actually to be expected. And we need to be willing and able to address those objections before we uh, plunge on further with gospel presentation. That doesn't mean now that every single objection that is is brought up has to be answered immediately. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
But we cannot uh, descend to a place where we just say you believe because you've got to believe because you've got to believe and leave it there. There are objections that arise in people's minds. Many unbelievers will try to take you on a rabbit trail and that you need to avoid. You need to, to stay on the bright red line of the gospel. But there are, as I say, these legitimate and significant objections along the way that do need to be addressed. And we need to provide a proper response to those objections. And that proper response is not merely marshalling a bunch of evidence and laying it before an unbelieving heart and saying, what do you think, O sovereign one? Has God made a sufficient enough case for you to believe? That is not the way we address unbelief. We don't leave man in his assumed arrogance and superiority to judge the truthfulness of God. That is, a, that is an erroneous way to approach the objections. But we are to dismantle their objections along the way. We need to show them that their objections are not valid. That they are not valid. And, and they are not valid because they are either based upon misunderstandings or they are based upon inconsistent thinking on their part. The text before us this morning in Romans chapter 3, and you can go ahead and open there, Romans 3, page 1127. The Apostle Paul will model what I am talking about here in this first part of Romans 3. We call this sermon Objections Answered. Objections Answered because that's what Paul is doing here in the text before us. He is pausing to address some objections that are arising in the minds of his audience that need to be dealt with before he continues on with his gospel presentation to them. Let me read the text for you here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Romans then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, just as it is written that you may be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Chapter 2 of Romans is Paul's frontal assault upon the sacred traditions of Judaism. We labored away in that text to demonstrate how Paul has discounted their moral superiority, their religious privilege, and their national birthmark. 
each and every one of those items that the Jew of the first century was tenaciously clinging to in order to to assure them of their position and standing before a holy God, Paul dismantled in chapter 2. And he claimed there that, that neither any of them individually nor all of them together could shield the Jew from the wrath of God. The gist of Paul's argument, actually, as he finishes the chapter in verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2, is that circumcision does not produce righteousness and uncircumcision does not prevent it. That's how he closes out chapter 2. Now, of all of his assault upon the traditions of Judaism, nothing would have been more hurtful to his audience than to attack which was for them the essence of what it meant to be a Jew. The circumcision, the mark in their flesh, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant given by God to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac back in Genesis chapter 17. So this is the essence of what it means to be a Jew. And Paul has now uh, dismantled it. He's now said it doesn't matter. It's not important. Vis-a-vis your standing before God. That sign in your flesh which has for generations separated you from the surrounding pagans, Paul now says it doesn't matter. By appearing to attack the circumcision, Paul is appearing to attack all that it means to be Jewish. It's a frontal assault on their Judaism. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what kind of reaction you're going to get when you do that. At this point in time, there's a strong backlash, a strong negative response that's coming back to Paul from this teaching that he has been presenting here. Remember, he's preaching the gospel, right? He said earlier, I want to come to Rome because I want to preach the gospel. And guess what? This is the gospel that he is preaching to them via written form. And so this is the gospel presentation. And it is a gospel presentation in chapter 2 to address his own people, the Jewish people. And he has now attacked them so ferociously that they're back on their heels and they're closing down. They don't want to go any further with this person who they perceive as undermining everything that they hold near and dear. We can see historically the kind of reaction that Paul got to his preaching in the book of Acts. Just to follow the logic with me here, but it was a few years later, you remember, Paul was in Rome and he was arrested, right? there, Or not in Rome, in Jerusalem, and he was arrested under a false accusation of bringing Gentiles into the restricted temple area. And so he was called before the Sanhedrin to make his defense. And uh, actually it was at the time of his arrest and the people... Uh, were listening to him and he was speaking to them and making a defense of what it is that he had really done and been doing. And they're listening very intently, very patiently to the Apostle Paul until he mentions that he had been sent to the Gentiles. Now, whenever you hear the word Gentiles, you know, you can kind of think uncircumcised in the back of your mind. They sort of go together, uncircumcised Gentiles, all right? When his Jewish audience heard that God had called him and sent him to the Gentiles, they became unglued. In fact, Luke records for us, Luke 20, or Acts 22, verses 22 and 23, 
that they raised their voices and they said away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. This was no small matter. No small matter at all. It would provoke the strongest possible reactions. And so before Paul can proceed any further in the book of Romans with his Jewish audience, without shutting them all down, without having them all close them off, without losing his opportunity to speak to them about the righteousness of God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he needs to answer some objections. He needs to deal with some of their objections. And that's what he's doing in the text before us, beginning here, chapter 3 and verse 1. This is a diatribe. I introduced that concept to you a few weeks back. It's a diatribe. All that means is it's a particular form of communication that was well known in the first century. And in a diatribe, what would happen is that the writer or orator would put into the mouth of an imaginary opponent the arguments that were most likely to be brought back to him and then answer them. So he basically just kind of begs the question and then gives the answer. That's a diatribe. And so that's what Paul is doing here in the, these first verses of chapter 3. He is putting the, the question into the mouth of his opponents, his Jewish opponents, his Jewish audience, and then he is answering the question that would naturally occur in their mind. Now you might ask yourself, how is he going to know what questions they have? Well, there's a pretty simple answer to that. First off, Paul was a Jew. And he wasn't just any kind of Jew. He was a Pharisee, right? He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was trained and steeped in Pharisaical Judaism. He knew exactly what they were thinking. There was the very things that he would have been thinking prior to his conversion. So he has personal experience. Beyond that, Paul was an itinerant preacher. And he traveled all over the Roman Empire. And wherever he went, he would enter a synagogue first. Isn't that true? And he would preach the gospel to the Jews first, because it's for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. He would preach in the synagogue. And the synagogue preaching wasn't like preaching here at Foothill Bible Church. Synagogue preaching allowed a little bit of give and, and, uh, and take. Okay, so questions would, could be yelled out and so forth. And so he was well aware of his audience and how they were processing the message that he was preaching. And so he doesn't have to guess at what's in the mind of his audience here. He knows exactly what it is they are thinking. And he's going to have to address it. Now, he will address it far more extensively in chapters 9 through 11. But he's not there yet and we're not there yet. But in the beginning here of chapter 3, he's going to raise and answer in a very short, staccato-like way the four common objections that are raised to his gospel presentation vis-a-vis -vis the Jews. Okay? That's the structure. And so as we're looking at the text together this morning, I want to do the same thing. I want to briefly examine the four objections to Paul's gospel and his response so that we can learn how to better defend our faith. Okay? So, I've given you a handout, and I'm going to give you the first objection. First objection, Paul, your teaching overturns God's choice. First objection, Paul, your teaching overturns God's choice. Now, through the use of Hebrew parallelism, which is really one thought, two expressions. So you've got two questions here in verse 1. It's really one question, just phrased in two different ways. What 
then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? That's the same question. Okay, it's just asked in two different ways. The question is, is Paul, what is the, what is, uh, the issue with regard to national ethnic Israel? God has chosen us and it seems that your teaching is overturning that choice of the nation. By saying circumcision doesn't mean anything, you are overturning the choice of God with regard to the nation of Israel. Now that is no small question. No small question at all. Clearly, God had chosen the people of Israel. And He had established them with the status of most favored nation. There is no way you can read the Old Testament and not come away with that conclusion that the nation of Israel has a treaty with God which conveys or confers upon them the status of most favored nation. And so their question back to Paul is, Paul, your gospel preaching is turning over or overturning or throwing off the issue of God's choice. You're making it as though God never chose us. But He did. Exodus 19, verse 6, You shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. These are just a few samples. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. To be a Jew, to bear in your flesh the mark of the covenant of Abraham through circumcision, was to be one of the chosen people of God. To be part of the nation that had this most favored nation status. Now this this status or, this, or the, uh, this privilege was embodied in the Abrahamic covenant itself, which circumcision was the sign of. The Abrahamic covenant, you remember, it's first given in, Ju- in uh, Genesis 12 and repeated in 15 and 17 and further expanded as the Old Testament uh, uh, begins to unfold before us. It promised the nation a land, a homeland forever. It promised them nationhood. It promised them a Messiah. It promised them to be the channel of blessing through to all humanity. Very significant promises given to the people. But now Paul is redefining, or at least it appears to them, he's redefining the terms and seeming to say that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're circumcised, it has no value. Well, if that's true, if it doesn't matter at all whether you're circumcised, that calls God's choice of Israel into question in the mind of Paul's audience. And actually, in reality, it calls it into question. And so their objection is real and it is significant. And if there's going to be any progress with the gospel to the chosen people of God, this question must be addressed. It must be addressed. Think with me of the history of the Jewish nation. They are a peculiar people. Enslaved to the Egyptians for over 400 years. Under captivity and bondage to the Babylonians. Then to the Greeks. And then the Roman occupation. 
that was going on even now as Paul wrote. No people group has, has suffered in the way the Jews have suffered. And yet they have tenaciously clung to their faith in, in Jehovah God because of their, their conviction that they are indeed a chosen race. A people of God. People of God's own choosing. They believe, and rightfully so, that they are the chosen people of God. They're wondering right now, though, if Paul, if you're right, if you're correct in what you have been saying, then what is the profit of being a Jew? What's the point of being a Jew? Why would we ever want to be part of this people group? And if being a Jew doesn't save us from the wrath of God, then what are its advantages over heathenism? What's the point? Why not be a pagan? It seems like they have just as good a chance before God. Why would I want to be a Jew and be persecuted the way I have been persecuted? This is a huge issue. So Paul's going to give him an answer. Verse 2. He's going to give him an answer. All of his answers, by the way, here are very short. As I said, they're very staccato. They're very short, quick answer. Okay, He's going to deal with this in a much greater way in chapters 9 through 11. But here, he's just going to quickly deal with the objection so that he can get on with his gospel presentation. Answer, verse 2, great in every respect. I love that kind of an answer. Okay, great in every respect. First of all, and don't you love the way Paul, he does this more than once. He says, first of all, and you're expecting second, third, fourth, fifth, right? But you never get beyond the first one. I think that was just the way his mind worked. But anyway, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's his answer. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. He gives them a brief answer. He gives them an unmistakable answer. And he gives them an answer, by the way, that was written. And think with me on this. It was written at a time when Christianity was beginning to spread all over the Roman Empire. It is spreading from one end of the empire to the other. And in fact, Paul himself is the chief uh, uh, planter of Gentile churches. He is responsible, probably in the, in the most unique way, for the spread of, of Christianity to the Gentile peoples. And yet he answers his countrymen here and he says that to be a Jew is great. The advantage is great in every respect because you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. He wrote to the Galatians earlier in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ it doesn't matter whether you're Jew, Gentile, male, female, right? Slave or free. You're all one in Christ. Yet he's still maintaining here that there is some great benefit in being a Jew. Some great benefit. What was that benefit? What is the benefit, Paul, of being a Jew? And is that benefit still true today? Or did something happen 2,000 years ago to take that benefit away? How would you answer this question today? What is the point of being a Jew? Does your gospel Christian overturn God's choice of Israel? That's the question. That's the question. Well, Paul says they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So we need to understand this a little more. 
They're entrusted with the oracles of God. Logion, the word oracles, related to the word logos, which is the idea of word. And so what they were entrusted with, Paul says here, is the words of the true and the living God. They were entrusted with the words of the true and the living God. God's written revelation to humanity is what the Jewish people were entrusted with. Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. God revealed his word to the people of Israel uniquely. Now, this entrustment that Paul is referring to is not that God has merely made the people of Israel a safety deposit box. Okay, into which he took his written revelation and just placed it within them and locked it with a key and said, OK, now it's safe. All right. That's not the concept of what he is communicating. What he is communicating here is it is through this written revelation that God has uniquely revealed to them. That he is going to do something for them. He is going to give them a homeland and he is going to give them a headship with regard to the peoples of the world. That's what is embodied in this short staccato statement that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Not just that they had the Old Testament, but they had the content of the Old Testament. And the content of the Old Testament is a promise to the people of Israel for a land and a headship amongst all the peoples of the world. If you cut that out, you have cut out the Old Testament. We see the promise of headship in Isaiah 60, verse 14, for example. And by the way, these promises are replete throughout the Old Testament. But Isaiah 60, verse 14, for an example, the prophet writes, And the sons of those who are afflicted, excuse me, and the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 60, verse 14. Embodied in the promises of the new covenant itself. Ezekiel chapter 36 is the land promise that is inextricably woven into the promise of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. Just listen. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. By the way, notice the land is like two bookends, either side of the promise of the Spirit. You're going to get your land. The promise of the land and the promise of the headship amongst the nations are, are, what it, are the core essence of this great Abrahamic promise. And so to gut them, 
To say that being a Jew provides no advantage is to overturn the choice of God with regard to Israel. Or that's the implication of it all. This has to be addressed. Now, Paul's Gospel, with its truthful attack on self-righteous Judaism, does not mean that God's choice of Israel as the preeminent nation has been overturned or ceases to be. There are some of our Christian brothers who have made that false assumption that somehow now Israel has been set aside and that the church now has assumed the promises to Israel and nothing could be further from the truth. You cannot read the Old Testament and arrive at that conclusion. You must bring it to the text and then do great violence to many very clear texts that speak the opposite. Why can Paul say that his gospel does not overturn God's choice of Israel? Why can God say that what is the advantage of being a Jew? That it is great in every respect? It's because they are the chosen people of God. And they remain so even today. Even today. And that leads to the second objection. The second objection that his audience would be Raising with him, that is, Paul, your teaching nullifies God's promises. Now, this is kind of a related objection. All of these objections are essentially related to each other. Little nuances of them, okay? The fundamental one is the first one. These sort of flow out. Now, this next objection that is raised by Paul's imaginary opponent is that Paul's teaching abolishes God's promise to Israel. Now, there's a, there's a little... Uh, there's a very subtle and cunning twist that's going on here in the text, and you're going to have to stay with me on this one to follow it. The Abrahamic covenant, which was symbolized by circumcision, made with the nation of Israel, is an unconditional covenant with the nation. There are no terms to be fulfilled by the nation in order to receive the benefits of that covenant. Do you understand that? Okay, it is an unconditional covenant. Therefore, unbelief on the part of a few within that nation cannot abolish the promises that have been made to the nation. Do you understand that? The fact that a few people fall beside the wayside doesn't undo the promise God made with the people of Israel as a whole. This is bedrock in the mind of a Jew, and it's actually truthful. It is a true understanding. And that's why, by the way, in, uh, in verse 3, when the uh, objection is raised, right? What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Okay, and that is uh, grammatically a question that is formed expecting uh, a, a negative answer. That is, it, it, could be, it could be said as a positive statement. The fact that some do not believe will not nullify God's faithfulness. That is bedrock to a Jewish mind, to a Jewish understanding. This question expects a no answer. What they're essentially arguing against Paul here is that for in order for God to be faithful, He has to keep His promises regardless or not of whether any Jew ever believes the Scripture. Okay? That's, that's the the direction that they're driving him towards or trying to drive Paul's gospel towards. What they're assuming is, is that God's 
unconditional promises to Israel apply to all Jews at all times. But in reality, individual participation in the promised blessing relies upon repentance and saving faith in Paul's Messiah. You don't get in automatically just because you're physically circumcised. Look with me and look at it again with me. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? No. No, it will not overturn the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, look at Paul's answer, verse 4. May it never be the strongest negative expression in the Greek language. Megenetoi, okay? No, 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 if you'd like an idiomatic translation. It will not overturn the faithfulness of God. Paul is in agreement with them. But what is subtly underneath their question is, is that if it will not overturn God's faithfulness of the Abrahamic covenant, then therefore even those who don't believe will be swept in and enjoy its benefits. And with that, Paul cannot agree. Individual participation in the promise to the nation requires repentance and faith. You don't get in automatically because you're circumcised. All right, so Paul responds to their question, verse 4, and he says, May it never be. No way. No, no, no. Unbelief does not undo God's faithfulness. By the way, if unbelief undid God's faithfulness, Messiah would have never come. Right? So unbelief doesn't undo God's faithfulness. In fact, what Paul is going to assert here in verse 4 in his answer is that neither the unbelief of some nor the unbelief of every single man is capable of nullifying the faithfulness of God. Look at what he says. May it never be. May genetoi. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Okay? It doesn't matter whether some don't believe. It doesn't matter whether everybody doesn't believe. The faithfulness of God to the Abrahamic covenant will not come undone. The promises to the nation are secure. They're secure. Now, that doesn't mean if you are in unbelief that you will participate in the blessing. But what it means is that your unbelief cannot undo the blessing. By the way, when he says, uh, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, the essence of unbelief is lying. It is lying about who God is, okay, whether he is faithful or not. Human unfaithfulness does not undermine God's faithfulness. Even if every single human being turns out to be a liar, God is still true. Okay? This, by the way, John Calvin says, is the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. This is a bedrock truth. You've got to grab a hold of it. You've got to cling to it. When your life is in trouble, hang on to this truth. God is true, although every other person is a liar. Okay? It doesn't matter what anybody else says in contradiction to what God has said. God is always, always true. Always true. Now, Paul confirms the statement here. Notice with a citation of the Old Testament. As it is written. Okay? As it is written. And he cites here out of Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51 was David's penitential psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. In verse 4 of Psalm 51, David says to God and through to everyone who would read that you are just in judging me. You are right in condemning my sin. 
because I have sinned against you, right? I have sinned against thee and thee only. David recognizes that all sin is fundamentally against God. And so therefore, when God judges his sin, David says, you're right, you should judge it. That's the context in Psalm 51. Paul lifts that out and brings it forward here in support of his argument. So how does this work? How does this citation from the Psalms support Paul's contention here that God is always faithful no matter how great or little the unfaithfulness of his people? How does that how does that prove up his point? Well, hang with me here now. There's a shift that's going to happen right here now. There's a little shift that occurs. The uh, the Paul's opponents have been speaking only about the blessings of God's promises Paul is now and going to, by citing Psalm 51, verse 4, he's going to bring the idea of judgment into the picture. The faithfulness of God is not just to bless his people, right? The faithfulness of God under the covenant was also to do what? It was to curse his people. Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 28? There was a whole list of curses that were to come upon the people as part of the Mosaic covenant. God said, if you do this, these blessings will come on you. And if you don't do this, these cursings will come upon you. The faithfulness of God is in question if he doesn't bless and if he doesn't curse. So Paul now is going to use, he's going to turn the argument on his opponent here. And he's going to bring the idea that even the, the, uh, the wrath of God is a, is a fulfillment of the faithfulness of God upon unbelieving Jews. Notice in, uh, he talks about uh, truthfulness in, uh, in the beginning of verse 4. Rather, let God be found true, although every man is found a liar. That is, that God is a truthful God. Okay, and, and then he talks in the question of verse 3 is about faithfulness. And so God is both truthful and faithful to his promises of blessing and cursing. He will bless his people. Those who participate in the covenant by faith, he will curse his people who refuse to participate in the covenant by faith. He's equally faithful to inflict wrath and blessing. And so by introducing the topic of wrath, he sets the stage for the third objection that's going to arise. Now you've got to remember, this is, you know, I'll review this with you. This is not an argument with one person. Okay? This is a compilation of arguments that have been thrown back at Paul. And he's just knocking them down one after another. There is a flow of thought. Okay? But it's not like one person who's jumping here and there. So his first objection was that if there's no advantage in being a Jew, Paul, according to your teaching with regarding the circumcision, then God's choice of the people of Israel has been overturned. Second objection is, is that your teaching overturns God's faithfulness to his people. And Paul's saying, no. My teaching doesn't overturn his faithfulness either. He is faithful to bless and he is faithful to curse. Third objection. Here in verse 5, your teaching makes God unjust. Your teaching makes God unjust. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. Is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Okay. This again expects a no answer. This is, this is uh, in the mouth of his opponent. It expects a no answer. They expect Paul to say that, uh, that the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. And Paul, therefore, 
You're teaching that, that, uh, that our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness makes God out to be unfair, unjust. What they're arguing essentially is that, God, that Paul is teaching God's promises when they, uh, when they come to pass on Israel will make God more glorious because of her unbelief. Think about that. They're saying, Paul, when you, you have this gospel of grace, and you're saying that when, the, when God uh, saves his, his people, when He brings His people in, in spite of their wickedness, that makes God look really good. And so our unbelief actually benefits God. It actually benefits God. And if, and if He's going to punish us for something that makes Him look good, then that, that means He's not fair, He's unjust. And we're sure He's not unjust. If we know anything about God, we know He's not unjust. So that everybody know, might know that Paul's not making, you know, he's not thinking this way, okay? He's not, he's not putting uh, God and unrighteousness in the same sentence. He adds this little uh, parenthetical, I'm speaking in human terms, okay? He's saying, I'm, comprising this, I'm composing this argument as an unregenerate person, okay? That's why he's just putting that in there for you. How's Paul going to answer this objection? How's he going to answer the objection that the unrighteousness of Israel somehow makes, that makes God look even greater when he, when he blesses His people, makes God look unfair when He curses His people. His answer, may it never be, right? See it again, verse 6. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? This is a silly argument, and so Paul is going to dispense with it here. Basic core belief of the, of the Jews was that God judges the wicked Gentile world. They're going to get what they deserve. Judgment was very much a part of what it meant to be a Jew, to understand the Gentiles to be judged. So what Paul does is he essentially points out to them is that, is that if God can't judge the Jews without being unrighteous, right, because their sin makes him look better, then according to their logic, he can't judge the Gentiles either. May it never be. No, 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 no. If He can't judge you, He can't judge them. And that takes the fourth objection they're throwing at Him. Paul, your teaching encourages sinning. Your teaching encourages people to sin. Verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, okay, in a little parenthetical insert there, let us do evil that good may come. They brought it down from a national basis to an individual basis. They're saying, Paul, you're teaching. If we follow your teaching through to its logical conclusion, then the more evil we do, the more glory God gets. Alright, verse 7. If through my lie the truth of God abounds to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Why is He punishing me if for what I do makes Him look good? 
If the more wicked a person is, more glory God gets when he forgives him, then the logical conclusion is, is that we should be as wicked as we can be so that God will get the maximum glory when he saves us. By the way, I've had someone try this one out on me before. You talk about a gospel of grace, you're saved by grace through faith, right? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And God gets glory for forgiving wicked sinners, right? Well, then the more, by that logic, the more wicked I am when He forgives me, the more glory He's going to get. If I'm only a little bit bad, He only gets a little bit of glory. If I'm a triple axe murderer, right? Then I'm really bad and His glory is really displayed. Okay. You're thinking, oh, nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks like that. Oh, yeah, they do. Oh, yeah, they do. In fact, you know who thinks like that? Many young people growing up in the church think like that. They say, I have no testimony for Christ. I grew up in the church. I kind of, you know, I, I don't remember when I didn't go to church. In fact, I can't even remember when I, when I didn't believe. I've always believed. And I, I didn't, I, you know, I wasn't involved in sexual sin. I never took drugs. I didn't get drunk. I don't have a child out of wedlock. I never robbed a bank. I ne- you know, I never did this. I never did that. So I don't have a testimony. Like someone else. Oh, do we love those testimonies, don't we? Right? We'll put them up front. And they'll tell all the wickedness they've done. And God has saved me. Praise the Lord, He saved you. Isn't God glorious to save such a wicked person? But the one growing up in the church, no testimony for God. Why? Well, because I didn't sin much. (laughs) (laughs) Complete misunderstanding of depravity, right? Their testimony is just as glorious. Just as glorious. They have been redeemed from spiritual death, enmity to God. But we all like, we used to call them a chocolate testimony. We all like to hear about the reprobate who was saved because that makes God look glorious. So if we fall into that kind of thinking, we can make a logical extension that says, well, then the more chocolate my testimony is, the more glorious God is when He saves me. So let me do evil so the good may come. In fact, now that I'm a Christian, and he, you know, he not only saved me, his, you know, in a point in time, he's continually saving me. And since God likes to forgive sin and I like to sin, why don't I just sin and let him do what he likes and it's just forgive me? Make sure you understand that I was just using that as a hypothetical. I don't want to see that edited out of anything and appearing in its own context. I'm not advocating that. But you can get trapped in that kind of crazy thinking. I can't make this a two-part. I'm leaving on vacation. <laughs> All right, Paul, how are you going to answer this last objection? 
But the gospel of grace promotes antinomianism. It's a big word. Anti against nomos law, against the law. That the gospel of grace encourages lawlessness, unrestrained evil. Their condemnation is just. That's his answer. Okay? This is, a, this is a blasphemous, perverse argument, and he just condemns it and is done with it. He won't take this one up. Okay? This is a perverse notion. People who teach these things, people who believe these things, they get what they deserve, he says. Their condemnation is deserved or just. Like Paul, if you are engage in serious gospel presentation, you make a serious attempt to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear upon your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers, people you meet, you are going to encounter objections. Guarantee it. They are going to come. And there are, there is a place in time when they must be overcome. They need to be overcome. If we are to make a full gospel presentation, we do need to deal seriously. We're not asking somebody to turn their brain off to become a Christian. The Christian faith will stand up to the, to the most um, serious intellectual scrutiny because it is truth. The truth is not afraid of scrutiny. It is the lie that hides in the darkness. That's the role of apologetics. Okay? That is the role of apologetics. Literally, it just means to provide a defense, to make a defense. It's to explain why we believe what we believe to be true. And it, by the way, is the responsibility of every single believer. Everybody. Peter says, 1 Peter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. That's the word, by the way, apologia. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and respect. Everybody's called on to make a defense. You must be able to defend the Christian faith. You're called upon to do it. It's not just the purview of, of experts. Now, there are those that are very, very accomplished at it, and we have much that we can learn from them. And in fact, we have the honor and privilege now of engaging one of them to come here this fall and to teach at FIT, beginning in September. One of the finest, I believe, apologetics and teachers of apologetics in Southern California has agreed to come and to teach. So when FIT begins, I think it's the 10th of September. This is a commercial, by the way. As part of the application. We've brought someone in for 10 weeks to teach a class called Apologetics and Evangelism. I know it's a busy time. This is a rare opportunity. He travels a lot. He speaks all over the place. And he's agreed to come and to teach on Monday nights here. So you don't want to miss that opportunity, okay? The other beautiful thing is it's just in time for the Upland Campaign. Isn't that neat the way the Lord works those things out? I called him a week or more ago and tried to engage him. And we were actually talking about the spring. 
But it turned out his calendar is just too full. The spring wouldn't work. He said, I can do it this fall. And I thought, you know what? This fall's good. This fall's a good time. We're going out. We're going to engage this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great to be armed along the way? You're all busy. I know you are. It's a great opportunity. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is intellectually robust because you have all truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so, our Father, when we go out to make disciples of the nations, as we have been so clearly instructed to do, we can go with a full confidence and assurance that the faith that we have is not some wild and blind leap into the dark, not some existential movement into Neverland, but is indeed a, a faith in fact. A faith built on the reality that You are God and that You have sent a Savior. Our Father, we as a church have very, very little involvement in Jewish evangelism. Lord God, perhaps this is an area in the months and years to come that we should consider more seriously. Father, may You impress upon our hearts if that might be a reality. For Lord, they are Your chosen people. And the Gospel is, Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Forgive us, Lord, of our arrogance towards the Jewish people. That somehow we have assumed in our hubris and pride that You have chosen to save us and not them because somehow we're more worthy. Lord, forgive us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.